Dear Father, we are so thankful, Lord, for strength to serve you. Each of us, Father, in our own way has been gifted. And as we've discussed in our Sunday school hour, Father, the, the giftings you've given us have been made available so that we would use them and we would work to serve you. And, and then, Father, we also remember that you've gifted us so that your glory would be seen in our meager efforts, Father, that our weakness would make you strong, would make you seen to be who you are, the one with the real power. And so, Lord, I thank you that we have the, the small measure of strength that we each possess to serve, that I have a voice today, Father, that lets me speak clearly and that I can use it to glorify you through the teaching of your word. And I thank you, Lord, for those who have the energy to come and listen here today and others on the Internet later. We thank you, Lord, for the chance to be useful in, in spreading your word. But we also know, Father, that you do it apart from us and our efforts and our contribution. That you are the Almighty, the Creator, the one who has all and owns all, has made all, and will, in its proper timing, bring all things to conclusion. And, Lord, we we come to your word with that awesome understanding and that appreciation for who you are. And we know your word, Father, has come forth from you so that we would know you better, serve you better, be more like you. And Lord, I pray those would be the outcomes of our study this morning as we learn about the new covenant that you inaugurated in Christ's blood for our sake. Let that be on our minds this morning, Father, and, and all that it means to us, Father. Let it remain on our hearts even after the, the study. Guide my words, Father. Speak through me as only you can by your spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have officially concluded our study on the order of Melchizedek, the priesthood that's called the order of Melchizedek. We learned that the title Melchizedek was given to the priest of God Most High and that that priesthood predated the Levitical priesthood, came before the Levitical priest, that it continued concurrently even as those other priests were doing their job in the tabernacle. And it was ultimately inherited by Christ, who came in the form of man expressly so that he could enter into that priesthood, the order of Melchizedek. Now, I know that that teaching, as we went through in the past weeks, may have challenged many of us as the writer himself indicated that it would. And I know that because I've heard from some of you and I've heard from others through email who've listened on the Internet that the study of Melchizedek that we presented was not exactly what they had expected, not from what they had heard in the past. I I get that. And, And I, too, was a little surprised as I was studying it and from what I learned. And I think it's not uncommon for Bible students to approach the study of Scripture with certain assumptions that may later prove to be inaccurate assumptions. And when our assumptions run squarely into the revelation of the Spirit, as it did for me and as I hope it did for you, then it it should be the case that we get a little shock from that, shouldn't it? I mean, if we come to the Bible and we never find our minds changed or our hearts changed, if we never see anything new, then what's the point? Reminds me of a story of an elderly man who lay dying on his deathbed one one day. And as he was there on a particular day, death's agony was suddenly pushed aside by the smell of the aroma of his favorite homemade chocolate chip cookies wafting up the stairway into the bedroom. And so he gathered up his remaining strength and he lifted himself up from the bed and then leaning against the wall, he slowly made his way out of the bedroom with intense concentration and he supported himself on the banisters. He went down the stairs, gripping the railing with his hands and laboring in his breath. 
And then he gets to the kitchen, he leans on the doorway and he looks through the kitchen and wide eyed he spies on the table dozens and dozens and dozens of freshly baked chocolate chip cookies. It's his absolute favorite. He asks himself, is this heaven? Have I died already? In one last final heroic act, he gathers up his strength and begins to crawl across the floor toward the table, thinking that perhaps his devoted wife had decided as one last act of kindness to her husband as he's about to leave the world, had devoted her day to making all these cookies for him. And then he throws one hand up on the table and then gets up just high enough that he can see over the edge of the table, finds the closest cookie, grabs it, and then crumples down in a rumpled posture on the ground and that taste of chocolate gets into his mouth and the warmth of it, the dough, it just takes some of the pain away. It's, it's, it's like his, his disease is suddenly gone for just a moment. And as he brings himself to get another cookie, putting his hand over the table, suddenly he recoils with his sharp pain in his hand and he looks up to find his wife standing over him with a spatula, having just smacked his hand. Stay out of the cookies, they're for your funeral, she says. So if your assumptions about the order of Melchizedek, it's a tough turn, I get that. If, if, if your assumptions were rudely dismissed by the teaching, then, then please forgive me. But I stand convinced that the writer was intending to emphasize Christ's inheritance of an order that has long been established for the purpose of ultimately bringing men to reconciliation with God. And that it is that order that brings us there rather than any that might otherwise exist, particularly the Levitical order, that is so central to his teaching. And in fact, as we move forward now into the rest of this letter, you're going to see, I believe, that this revelation of Christ acting as part of another priesthood, having inherited it from Joseph and all the way back, you're going to find why it's so central to understanding the rest of this letter. In fact, I dare say that the next three chapters of this letter become intensely more powerful and meaningful from the understanding of Melchizedek than if you did not have that understanding. So we've established Christ as our high priest in a better order, one that predated and preempted the Aaronic order. And as all priests are called to do, Jesus performed the work of a priest in that order, meaning he offered sacrifices to God on behalf of men. And in Jesus' case, that was a once-for-all sacrifice of his body, unlike the continual sacrifices of the Aaronic priesthood. And now that he's done that once-for-all sacrifice, he is seated, we're told, uh, at the right hand of God, having performed his priestly duties, because unlike those other priests, he has no need to repeat his sacrifice. But that begs some questions. If Christ has served as our high priest in performing a spiritual service before God Most High, because that's what priests do, then where did he perform this work? Where's his tabernacle? You know, every priest officiates before an altar, we're told. And we know he was not a member of the Aaronic priesthood. So he never officiated in the earthly tabernacle that was appointed to the Aaronic priests. He couldn't do so, the writer said, because he wasn't qualified by the law to be an Aaronic priest. Well, therefore, where did he officiate? Where did he serve in his capacity as high priest? Well, that question and others that will follow it begin a three chapter section that explores the implications of having a high priest who belongs to a different order than the Aaronic order. For where there is a change in priesthood, there is by necessity a change in law also. 
So if he serves under a different priesthood, then he serves under a different law. If he serves under a different law, then he must be serving in a different tabernacle. He can't be serving in the tabernacle that comes under the law that created the Aaronic priesthood. And then lastly, the sacrifices that Jesus offered or the sacrifice that he offered must be different than those that were presented under the law. In short, everything's got to be different. Everything has to be different. That's the writer's larger point. So let's move forward with him into chapter 8. And he begins with this question of where did he serve? Look at verses 1 through 5. Now, the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So it is necessary that this high priest have also something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. Well, let's take note of how he begins this chapter. He says, now the main point is. Now the main point. I love that opening. That opening phrase takes us all the way back to the beginning of chapter 7 and our study of Melchizedek. And, you know, we studied a lot about Melchizedek as we looked through chapter 7. There was a lot there. The fact that Jesus inherited it, the fact that he serves in it perpetually, the fact that it's different than the other order, that's really the heart of what we were studying over the last chapter. Uh, and the fact that he'll never lose it because he never dies again. All of that constituted background. That wasn't even the main point. That was what you had to know before you could understand the main point. In other words, understanding Jesus as the fulfillment of the order of Melchizedek is foundational to understanding the rest of this writer's arguments. I've heard one commentator said that the entire epistle turns on an understanding of Melchizedek which explains why he was so worried that his audience wasn't ready for it. Now, what is the main point? Well, the main point is Jesus is a priest appointed to serve as a minister before the living God in a heavenly tabernacle. That's the central point for the next three chapters. The writer calls this heavenly tabernacle a true tabernacle because it's not the one established by the law given to Moses that operated on the earth. It is not one built by the hands of men. It is an entirely different structure. It's the tabernacle that the writer says involves true worship, true sacrifice. It's the one that God truly occupies. It's the place where Christ serves as high priest. Notice in verse 3, the writer says, Every high priest is appointed so that they will serve God in the context of a tabernacle. And they do it by offering gifts and sacrifices. Everybody's got to have a home. If they're a priest and the father has called Christ as our high priest in a different order, well, then it stands to reason he must have given him a home in which to serve. A priest has to have an altar. Well, and the writer says in verse four, it can't be the earthly one. If you're looking for the place where Christ served, it can't be the one on earth, because according to the law of Moses, he wasn't qualified to walk in that place and do what priests did in that place. He was disqualified because he didn't have the right lineage. He wasn't born of Aaron, of Levi. He was born of Judah. But 
by that same token, it was never the Father's intent that that's where Christ would serve. That was never the plan. It's not like God wanted it that way and then something fell apart and he had to come up with a backup plan. It was never going to be that way. That was never his intent. He was designated, we read in Psalms, to be a priest in a different order. Now you begin to understand the importance of his priesthood having a different origin than the one given through the law. Being part of a different, better order means everything that is associated with that priesthood will be different as well. Everything must change. Jesus is a different priest. He has a different tabernacle. And he serves in that different tabernacle with different sacrifice. And so the writer says in verse 5 that the one on earth is only a copy. Or the better word, the Bible's word really, is shadow. A shadow. And you've heard me use analogies built on this word in the past. I'll repeat it here again just to make sure we all understand what a shadow means in Scripture. A shadow means the, the illusion of something, the suggestion of something, but not the substance of that thing. Very much in the way that a real shadow works in the physical world. I've used the analogy before about someone who is approaching a friend from around the corner of a building and they're already yelling at each other. I'm here. I'm coming. I'm almost there. And they can hear each other's voice, but they can't see each other yet because they're still out of sight around the corner. But the sun shining on that day is casting the shadow of one of those people ahead of them. So that as they approach the corner of the building, their shadow precedes them around the corner. And that leaves the other person with the ability to see them coming, at least in the sense that I can see their shadow appearing, but I can't yet see them. Well, in that brief moment before they appear, the shadow serves a good purpose, does it not? It gives me an indication of who they are. I can maybe tell by the outline that I know that shape. I know that person. It tells me how close they are as the shadow gets longer and goes more around the edge. They're getting closer. And it may give me something to focus on as I talk to them, because otherwise I'm just left staring at the blank wall. And so I might talk to the ground, staring at their shadow for just a moment. But as they appear around the corner and I see them in their full form, at that moment, I instantly stop looking at their shadow. Their shadow has no value anymore. It served its purpose. That purpose has come and gone and something better has come. Their full figure is now available for me. I can look directly in their face. That's how shadows work in Scripture as well. The tabernacle and the law that established it and all that came with it was set up as a shadow or copy of things that were in heaven, the substance of which actually achieve the things that the ones on earth were just imitating or copying or acting as a shadow of. The law of Moses established these things, but Jesus is the fulfillment of these things. And so the writer says in verse five that the Lord gave Moses this design specifically so that it would be a close facsimile of the real thing, that it would serve as a pattern. And this is coming out of Exodus when God gives Moses the instructions. He says in Exodus 25 in verse nine, he begins by saying, according to all that I'm going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, just so you shall construct it. And then near the end, he summarizes, God summarizes in verse 40, saying, see that you make them after the pattern for them, which was shown to you on the mountain. God keeps reminding Moses, you're following a pattern. If anybody here is a seamstress, then you already understand what it means to follow a pattern. If I gave you the pattern for a dress, it doesn't look like a dress. If I showed it to you, you wouldn't wear it. It's not pretty. But from that pattern, I can make something that is the dress. Similarly, what God gave Moses was not the tabernacle of heaven, but it was something that if Moses follows the pattern properly, it will eventually show itself in a helpful way 
So if the earthly tabernacle is built according to a pattern, then it would mean there must already be the real thing in existence even before the earthly shadow was created. You see my point? There had to have been something already present. Have you ever seen an architect prepare a small scale model of a building that's planned for construction, sometimes a shopping center or maybe a skyscraper? And they go to the effort to create something on small, small scale that gives you a pretty good understanding of what you're going to get when they finish with the big project. And it's usually done to help sell the project, help get people excited about it. Now, when you look at that model, you have not seen the real thing. You've not seen it. You get a sense of what to expect when you look upon it. But the model is not the real building. You can't occupy it. You can't use it. And it's a fraction of the real size. We get that, right? Once the real building is in place, do you care about the model? If someone says, I'd like to see what the Empire State Building looks like, do you take them to Midtown Manhattan? Or do you take them to the little model that sits in the lobby? Once the real thing is in place, that model has no value or little value and perhaps nothing more than as a curiosity. And the majesty of the real thing far surpasses the glory of that little model. And so it is with the earthly tabernacle that was built for Israel under the law. God gave them what is essentially an earthly model of the thing in heaven. It's inferior in every way to the one that's in heaven. But for a time... It served to give Israel and the world a sense of what God would accomplish on their behalf in some future day in the real one. Now that the time has come that the greater priest has been revealed and he has entered into his greater tabernacle and he's done the work of sacrifice that's required once for all. Well, then what good is the earthly one? Once the real skyscraper is finished, you stop staring at the model. You look up and you stare at the real one. Likewise, now that the real one is operating with God most high and our priest installed at his right hand, you look up. You don't look down at the earthly tabernacle any longer. And even though that real one remained in operation for a while, as it was in the time of this writing, the writer says it's no longer the one that matters. Friends, we also have a model today. I know we don't have the earthly tabernacle and nor do we need it, but there is still yet a model of sorts presented on earth. For friends, you have not seen the heavenly tabernacle yet. Even though it's now in operation, you and I have still not seen it. One day we will see it according to Scripture. But yet, as far as today is concerned, we have not seen it. We have a model today on earth that lets us perceive at a distance, in a shadow form, what that building will be like, what the tabernacle in heaven is like. Paul explains in Ephesians that we do have such a thing. Verses 19 through 22 of Ephesians 2, Paul says, So then you, speaking to the church, are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in his spirit. All of us collectively, the body of Christ, All believers who are born again by the Spirit are a temple, or we could say tabernacle to make the comparison to Hebrews 8. We are the tabernacle of God on earth. We are the building. Now, that building, Paul says, is built on a foundation. That foundation is the apostles and the prophets. What he means is, of course, the word of God as delivered through those men. And then the cornerstone is Christ himself. You can't even start the building without Christ. And the Spirit is now at work fitting us 
into one another. And that word fitting in the Greek, it literally suggests the way a, a stonemason would take raw stone and just work off the rough edges so that it gets straight corners and smooth surfaces so that when you put them together, there's no gaps. They're fitting together perfectly. And we know that that's how the Spirit is working in each of us individually. Knocking off, if you will, rounding off the sin in our lives through the process of sanctification, convicting us, training us. And in so doing, we all start to fit a lot more closely together because we all become a lot more like Christ. And so that those differences that cause friction and disagreement or discord in the body of Christ are being eliminated because we're all becoming more like Christ. A.W. Tozer has a great analogy for this. He says, everyone is moving from where they are toward Christ. And if you're moving toward Christ, then you're all going to meet. You're all going to be more like him. And that's the concept that Paul is echoing here. So collectively, we are being made into a building that is worthy to be occupied by the King of Kings through his spirit. But no matter how mature and how holy this building, and of course, I'm not referring to the walls, right? I'm referring to the people. No matter how holy and and perfect this building might become over time, it is still going to pale in comparison to the glory of the true tabernacle. So it's back to the shadow comparison again. For now, we serve as a distant reminder of the glory of God in the fullness of his dwelling place. We are a representation of it on earth. And as you look around and you see the changes taking place in you, in yourself and in others, because of the work of the spirit, what you're seeing is just a little bit of heaven. You're starting to see the glory of God represented. And friends, if God can take this fallen, sinful body, mine individually and ours collectively, and turn it into something useful for his sake, then what will he do with a tabernacle that has as its origins God himself? Uh, How much glory do you think we're going to see in that work? And similarly, if God's dwelling place is intended to reflect glory upon himself, then the question stands, how much are we doing to make that our goal in how we live as Christians? If the purpose of us being a body is for his glory and to reflect that to the world, are we living up to it? We absolutely should. As Paul says in Romans 12, verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So the writer begins chapter 8 by saying, new priest, well then, new tabernacle. And in fact, it's always been in heaven waiting to come down. So now if the inauguration of that heavenly tabernacle with a better priest and better gifts and better sacrifices means the earthly one is unnecessary and irrelevant, well then what does that mean for the covenant that established it? We call it the old covenant. That's what this writer is going to begin calling it. What about that covenant then? That's the question the writer is going to explore Over the next series of chapters, the writer has already said in chapter seven, the priesthood means a new law. Now he's saying a priesthood means a new tabernacle. And so the third point is it also means a new covenant. Verse six, he says, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. Now, the writer says Jesus is a priest and a mediator of a better order, better tabernacle, better law, and a better covenant that has better promises. The ministry of Christ is more excellent in every way when compared to anything that was given to picture that ministry. A covenant is just basically a promise or a series of promises. And it is an important biblical mechanism for understanding how God works. 
in his creation, in people, in history. The Lord begins his relationship with people in the garden through a promise, the most famous one perhaps. In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. That was the first promise he made. He continues to make promises after the fall. He's made promises throughout the history of the Bible. We call those promises covenants, where he has made a promise to somebody. And it's always the way God works within creation, by a word of promise. And he states in advance these words, because then he sets up the premise that if you believe, if you trust, if you have faith in those promises, then your faith will save you, will make you righteous, based on your willingness to accept his promise. In the case of the Old Covenant, given to Israel, mediated by Moses, you have certain promises. But the writer says, those promises weren't very good, not in comparison to the ones that come in the New Covenant. It's because of the insufficiency of those earlier promises that you even have need for a New Covenant in the first place. And to make the point, the writer reminds the reader how God himself announced this covenant. Verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless. Well, there had never been occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with him, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day which I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds, into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. You all may remember these verses if you've read Jeremiah 31. If anybody asks you, the new covenant, where do I find the new covenant? It's Jeremiah 31. This is where it was first announced. And the writer goes back to that text of Jeremiah to make a simple, logical observation. If the covenant God made with Moses, he calls it here the first covenant. If that covenant was faultless, then God would never have spoken to Israel about getting another one. He's calling the Old Covenant the first one here, not because it's literally the first covenant ever inaugurated, but it's the first in comparison to the new because it came before the new. But back to his point. If the Old Covenant were perfect in all respects, then it would have been the last word on covenants, the high point of covenants. But it isn't the case that that happened. In Jeremiah 31, many, many years later, God is speaking to Israel saying, you have need of a new and better covenant compared to the one I gave you before, compared to the one I gave your fathers in the desert. And it will be one that replaces the one that they have in the desert. And then to quote, look what he says. This is from Jeremiah 31, 27 through 34, if you're keeping notes. This is, in some estimation at least, this is the high point of Old Testament prophecy. It's the point when Israel was suffering under the greatest misery in their captivity because of their sins under the Old Covenant. And they're in exile And in the midst of all that well-deserved suffering, the Lord announces, I intend to bring a solution to you for the suffering that you're enduring. It will be a new covenant. It will not be a covenant that leads you into sin. It will have the power to actually rescue you from sin and from the misery that it brings. That's what makes it better. And he quotes the Lord speaking in verse 8 out of Jeremiah, declaring that these new promises would be different than the ones God delivered to Israel in the desert. So in verse 8, he says, I'm going to give you a new set of promises, better ones. The old promises of the old covenant were conditional. 
God said that he would bring them great blessing. But he said that blessing was contingent on Israel performing the law perfectly. Unless they keep the law perfectly, they would forfeit all of those blessings. And in forfeiting all the blessings, instead, they incurred a bunch of curses that were also stipulated in the covenant. It's not God's fault that the promises in the old covenant weren't advantageous for Israel. It was the inability of sinful flesh to keep the law that produced that outcome. It's not God's fault. They walked into it willingly and agreed to the terms. But that's exactly why God said you're going to need a new covenant. You're going to need a better one. This one you've got now is not going to bring you any of the blessings that you desire because of your inability to keep the covenant. So comparing the promises of the old to the promises of the new in verse 10, he says in the new The Lord is going to put the law into your minds and into your hearts. What he means is those who enter into this new covenant that I'm going to make with Israel and with Gentiles later, they're going to receive a supernatural understanding and appreciation for God's word. The righteousness of God is going to literally be infused into their very nature as a result of their faith. It's not going to depend on their ability to keep the law. It's not going to depend on their own power. The effect of this new covenant is to literally produce the righteousness that you have to have in order to see the Lord, in order to be reconciled. Now, friends, that's a wholly different kind of covenant. The first covenant says, here's what it means to be righteous. And if you can achieve this standard, then you can have these blessings. The new covenant says, you don't have the hope to become righteous on your own, so I'm going to give you the righteousness that's required. And by giving you the righteousness that's required, then you'll be able to receive all the blessings that righteousness receives. Notice at the end of verse 10, the effect of this writing on the heart will be that he will be their God and they will be his people. And then in verse 11, he says, there'll be no one who is in this covenant who has to turn to another and teach them about the Lord in the sense of evangelism. Because all will know him. Now, consider what he's saying here for a moment. This is probably the most important detail in this passage. Under the old covenant, Israel had prophets who would walk around within Israel, exhorting them to know the Lord and to obey his commands, to know him truly. Think about that. They're all in the old covenant. What did it take to become part of the old covenant? Just to be born into the nation of Israel. These are people who are in the old covenant by virtue of being part of Israel. And yet that same God who's in covenant with them is still sending them prophets, trying to get them to have faith in him. So the old covenant instituted the nation of Israel, created the institution of Israel, established it on earth, put a sacrificial system in place and a priesthood and a tabernacle and all the rest. But it did not have in its capacities or in its power the ability to compel knowledge, to compel faith, to bring anyone into the family of God. It was literally possible to be born physically into Israel and therefore become part of an old covenant and yet not to become born again and therefore to enter into the family of God. Isn't that interesting? They'd be part of the family of Israel, but only by faith were they brought into the family of God. That's why the Old Covenant, the writer has already called it useless and without power. Because, friends, there is no eternal value in any covenant with the living God that does not arrive at our reconciliation with him. Anything short of that is pointless in the eternal. Now, God has a purpose in it, and it serves a great usefulness in what God is achieving through it for the sake of men. But on an individual level, if you give me a covenant and it doesn't arrive at reconciliation with God, then I'm still looking for something else. I still haven't solved my fundamental concerns. So 
the old covenant did not have the power to create faith in the heart. It merely established standards that served to reveal the sin of the people. And in so doing, become an instrument to drive them to the new and better covenant. But you still have to have that new one. The new covenant is an instrument that has the power to bring faith to every member of the covenant. Remember, we're comparing covenants. So the members of the old was Israel. The members of the new will include both Israel and Gentiles. But if you are a member of the new covenant, if that covenant includes you, then it is by definition a covenant that brings you to salvation. You can't be in the new covenant without that faith. You can't be a part of it. It promises that we will all know the Lord. And it promises that one day we will all obey him. Now, today you're looking at your life, and I hope you're looking at your life like I do mine, and you're saying to yourself, I don't do a really good job of obeying. If I'm really honest with myself, it's not that good. I can see change. I can see progress. Before I knew the Lord, I mean, heaven knows I did everything wrong, even when I thought it was right. Now I know the Lord, so I see the difference between sin and righteousness. I understand the heart of God versus the heart of men. I've got a bigger perspective now, and I have choice. I can consciously choose to obey him now because I've been freed from slavery to sin. But the reality is I still don't always do it. So I'm hearing in these words that we will all know him and that we will all be righteous and that we will all have his word written on our hearts such that we will obey him. I don't see that yet, Steve, so am I missing something? Well, no, not not in the sense that you're you're missing out on the covenant. You can be in the covenant, certainly, and still experience this, because that's exactly the experience we all know. But the promise hasn't been fulfilled yet completely. We haven't seen all of it play out. There is still the, the part of that promise that is that we will be like Christ, that we will be resurrected and have a body like his. We will be glorified as he is. That part of the promise has yet to finish playing out for all of us. So there will be a time. When everything that's written in Jeremiah 31 is true for all those who are in the new covenant, including that we will not have sin. These are wonderful promises. These are promises that are far better than anything in the old covenant. They will see God's mercy and he will not hold their sins against them. Now, the old covenant made promises contingent on human performance. The new covenant is contingent exclusively on God's performance, on God's power and God's faithfulness as done through Christ on the cross and in his sinless life. Therefore, the old covenant brought nothing but condemnation. The new one leads us to righteousness. That's why the writer says it brings better promises. This is the covenant. This is the one that Christ established as our high priest by his death on the cross. The arrival of Christ in the order of Melchizedek means that the time has come for this new covenant to now take effect. And the writer says this in verse 13. He says, and when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. The old gives way to the new. This is one of my favorite arguments if I'm in a conversation with a Christian who, for whatever reason, has clung to the old or tried to mix the two. He's violated the, the precept that Jesus gave that says you cannot take new wine and put it in old wineskins. This is the problem of saying I can somehow fit my understanding of Christ and the new covenant into the framework of the old. I can put the two together in some way so that I can still have the new and the grace that it provides while living into the law and the burdens of the old and that God is pleased when I try to make those two fit together. And this writer says, look, friends, think about just language for a moment. When God called the covenant of Moses the old one, 
And he calls the covenant given through Christ the new one. He used words that all by their their nature, just the definition of these things, indicate a passing of one and an arrival of another, of a movement from to another. And the writer echoes that here. He says, whenever something is becoming old, it's being declared old because it's ready to disappear. Now, to those of us who may be getting up there in the years, don't take this wrong. We're not asking you to disappear, but it's the nature of things. Something new has come. Old things are gone. Paul uses that very same concept when he talks about the new man. Old things have passed away. New things have arrived, right? It's like the scale model example again. Once I've got the real building standing, who cares about the old one? Why do I make the two fit together? There's no concept of that even working. The promises of Jeremiah 31, though not fully reality yet, they're not fully reality for all of Israel as they intend to be for those God appoints, and they are not fully reality even for us now because we still have to be glorified as God has promised one day in the future. But still, that arrival of Christ, of the appearance of the priest that goes with the order of this covenant, means that God was ready at that point to bring the new in and turn the old off. And the fact that the earthly temple in Israel disappeared not long after Christ's first coming was further evidence of God's timing and plan in these things. Next time when we come back, we're going to look as the writer considers how the scale model, as I call it, of the old covenant did serve to teach men. But what it taught was of the glory of this coming new covenant so that we would be ready to embrace it when it arrives. Let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for a chance to hear your word truly and to recognize the power and and the majesty of what you've offered in the new covenant. Father, as a believer, it's, it's often the case that we begin to look past what we've received because now that we have it, Father, we're thinking ahead to what comes next, and that's natural. But I'm also aware, Father, that we must preach our, the gospel to ourselves routinely, continually, never taking for granted what has been done for us already in Christ and this covenant that we've entered into so that we would be strong against those who would deceive us against, uh, into an attempt to make us return to works or slavery to, to the law for those who might claim that there is still more to be done or more to know before we can truly rest. Protect us from those errors, Father. Help us to see the truth in what you've given us today so that we would be uh, able to enjoy our liberty and to enjoy the freedom and the, the security of what you provided in your Son. And help us to teach others, perhaps with what we've learned. Most of all, Father, give us the joy to know that one day all these promises will be complete and we look forward and yearn for that day even now. Prepare our hearts for it, Father. Thank you for the teaching and for this morning. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.